Hey, everybody, before the show starts, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to send me your questions. I'm going to do another episode of questions and answers. Ask me anything you want about creativity, screenwriting, making the show, any of the movies that I've worked on. The last couple of these were received so well. I got so many notes about it. So send me questions to the moment, bk at gmail.com, or tweet at me, or hit me up on Instagram. Get me questions, and I will answer them in the next episode. All right, on to the show. Periodically, even though one doesn't need a resume, I take out my resume, I look at it, and I say, what the fuck have you done lately? Uh, that's insane. You're one of the most accomplished people in the food business. No, you've got to really put, you, if you can boil yourself down to two sheets of paper that are not double, you know, I need single-spaced, double-sided, four sheets of paper. And I'm only on, like, page two top of page two right you're like the old school kind of type a person yeah you're like before people realized they had to get some kind of balance in their I still lives listen type to cassettes a tape cassette tapes i might or might not have an eight track at home i handwrite lists i you're an obsessed yeah you're still super ob obsessed um it has to pass but, through me physically but to you have said happened. but wait you said you said you said i have to know like what have i what like what have i done yeah really? seriously Nothing. Like, because what? You haven't lived up to your potential then? No, I'm just so lazy and I've done nothing. And I feel, I feel, you know, I'm in therapy. But this is me with therapy and I am, you know, a generally non-medicated human and I feel. You do know that lazy people don't think they're lazy. I know lazy people. I know them and I am very envious of how peaceful they are. They don't think they're lazy. Lazy, lazy people think like, man, I did a lot today. I think there are three types of people, lazy, exhausted, and hostile. I'm not sure there's anything else. Where, where do you fall? I'm somewhere um, probably hostile, generally. Wake up annoyed. Just, no, you have too much laughter in your eyes for that, to be hostile. Yeah, yeah. You're not hostile, really. The only so exhausted. Way to, yes, okay. But the only way to sort of maneuver the universe if you feel amped up and alive and um, is to humor. I mean, really, tell a joke. And a kitchen is a... Even laugh, by the way. Yeah, yeah. A kitchen is even, it's such a game of verbal one-upmanship all the time. Who gets the last laugh? Who made the joke faster? Did the 14 halibuts go in the window while you made the joke and right. shut down the last person? Right. And then there's this idea of ratcheting. You know, like someone says a joke, someone builds, someone builds. My goal has always been I stand back and I watch a few verses of the joke, meander through, and I think... Okay, this is a 10-story, 11-story, 12. I watch it build, and I'm thinking, how do I get to the 36-story without anything in the middle and shut the whole thing so down? So you can lay in the weeds and wait for your spot. I wait. I wait. I will wait. I will drink coffee. I will stare into space. I will listen to you're Yanni. Like, I'll you're like anything. Doc Holliday in Platoon. You'll just wait to the last moment. <laughs> you seem like you're falling asleep drunk in the corner. What they don't realize is you have the two six-shooters hidden, ready to come out and do their business. I like this. I mean, I see it more as a dog day afternoony piece, honestly. I do. That's fine. Maybe lying on the floor of the robbery at the bank, sort of nondescript. Maybe I'm wearing pretty much what I'm wearing now, a sweatsuit, basically. And I am that person. Happy to be underestimated, overlooked until yes. you strike. Yes. I love to just, you know, what is this on the menu? It's apples and bread. You're really going to like it. No, this isn't just apples and bread. It really is. Really. Humble beginnings and then Shazam. Yeah, not to talk about another chef, but I, as I know how, I mean, all, of course, all chefs get along and love each other and there's no competition. But, I, I don't feel competitive with many people. But I was in Gabrielle Hamilton's restaurant I the other her. day. I was in Prune. I hadn't been there in a really long time. 
And you know, she brings out that, have you heard that orange, the candied orange dessert, Mm -mm. which is just an orange that's been 24 hours in uh, sugar syrup and then in a freezer. And she just gives you the whole orange. And it's just like the most simply prepared, just an orange. It's erotic. Let's face it. It's insane. And getting it stuck in your teeth. And maybe if you drink hot tea, the tea goes in your molars. And then you wash out this secondary taste of orange. But that's the power that chefs have is they can reduce you to a puddle. You have the ability to reduce people to a puddle just by doing something simple. But we don't know how to do any much else. So there's this feeling of, you know, you walk around this giant sort of overwrought ball of expertise, which is wonderful. I'm I'm really glad looking back so far in my life that I get up and I say, I'm an expert. But sometimes when I'm out of my element, I just think, boy, it would be really nice to not be so profoundly myopic and just be able to do other things. I mean, once I go into a room and I see food somewhere, I, like, there's, a, there's a very distracting bottle of hot sauce on your shelf. I can barely talk to you because I'm looking at Do you not know Yellowbird? Oh, yes. So we're, we're obsessed with Yellowbird sauce. We put it on the show just to do it, and we blew out their business in Texas. I love it. This is the best hot sauce. I guess um, you're not going to open any juice press places anytime soon. No, no I love juice press. We lo- Michael Karsh was on our show. Ice juice is not juice press. No, I know. I'm kidding. They're I'm entirely saying... different things. No, no, May I'm I just saying. Say? Michael Karsh, who is the um, like owner of, I went to college with him. So the ice juice thing, we we were, uh, Karsh his, his was also a big hedge fund guy and very helpful to us in the show. So we were winking at him with ice juice, but juice press, we love. No, I, I'm sorry. And I didn't we put mean to, Michael on the show. I didn't mean to name a specific brand, juice press. I more mean to say you're not going to go into the juice business. I am not personally going to go into juice no, business. No, no, I would say that's off the table. No, but I'm a big fan. My wife and I go to juice press a lot. And um, because when you leave Soul Cycle, there's a juice press right next door. Yeah, oh, I know. I just try to imagine a diet where I eat hemp and charcoal and collagen. I'm just trying to imagine all that in a burrito. It's better, probably be better in a burrito, but the burrito might defeat the, you could probably create that. Here's, here's the thing I want to pick up on though, because you're self-effacing though you have a tremendous amount of self-confidence. That's what one, right? Yes. I love that description. But that's what one picks up on watching you on television is both things. You have empathy, but you don't have a lot of tolerance. Yes. And, right? Oh, you like that one. Face I, lit up. I do. I appreciate that. And, but, but for yourself, when you said, um, but my limited area of expertise, but the truth is, you have a catholicity of areas of expertise. You're a broadcaster. You're a writer. You're a food person. So wh- why do you want to, sort of, what's the point of trying to, be so self-effacing and re- reducing these accomplishments. Because it strikes me, I was thinking about something I read that you said about, oh, being a woman in a kitchen, I liked being the odd one out or whatever. Yeah. But I've spoken to a lot of women chefs who yeah. had to come up. And I have a hard time really believing it. I believe you might have had to like, um, come up with a series of techniques to present yourself in a way that you could win. But I don't really believe in the beginning you could have enjoyed it. I don't know that I ever do. Ever enjoyed the kitchen? No, what you just said, which was come up with a series of techniques. And, you know, if you were going to strip me down and read me, you could have given me a heads up. Yeah, that's no one's ever said it like that. I like that. What I'm interested in is a certain amount of veneer that anybody has to have 
when they want something. Sure. You need veneer to get stuff. Sure. So, yeah, I went to um, I went to France. I got a degree in cooking from La Varenne in Burgundy. It took me nine months. I, I didn't really, per se, felt I wanted to go to culinary school because I thought, I'm just going to cut a million chickens. Then I'll know how to cut chicken. That physical repetition, I don't think anything beats it in the field. You just wanted to be like Sabrina. Yes. Okay. So I got the degree. I got the piece of paper and didn't really know much about cooking. Um, and I started working in a restaurant by accident. I was going to go two days to work at Guy Savoy, which is a three-star Michelin in Paris. Um, I went there for one day. Guy Savoy wasn't there. So I had a plane ticket home, and I had another day to work. You there. were trying to stage for a couple of days. I want yeah. so people yes. understand that's what you were work in the kitchen, see how they do it for a couple of days. Yeah, and then I was going to fly home. Right. Um, he came, Gisavwa, the second day, and I don't know. He walked in the door, and I just said, "Dad, is that you?" Um, and he just said, oh, "My kitchen's your kitchen. Whatever you want to learn." And I just thought, really. I looked around. There was twenty-seven dudes in me. I mean, the first thing anybody said to me was, you know, I don't know what's worse, that you're a woman or that you're American. I'm going to have to think about that. And I thought, okay, right. well, you think that out. Instead of thinking, I'm going to go home and cry because this person said that to me, I did that too. Right. I did that too. But first, let's talk about arugula and let me learn about it because that's the goal. So Did I, you gird yourself ahead of time? Did you know, like, because I do want to talk about your mom. because oh, I, yeah. I was, She's a pistol. I was at the James Beard Awards last year. And there was this woman there who all the chefs were bowing down to, and they were asking her opinion on things. And she was, she was, ru- rule- she was ruling on various matters with a clarity and sternness and really wasn't buying into the bullshit pomp and circumstance of the event. Uh-huh. I didn't know who she was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know she was your mother. I was just, because I'm a writer, I was just watching the interactions and these great famous chefs Literally, she was sitting, they were going over, bowing down to her, asking her, whispering to her like she was Don Corleone. She was saying what she wanted to say, and they were kind of walking away, either bewildered or happier. Or It was amazing. She had a lot of power in the room, personal power over the states of the people. And I was like, who the fuck is that? And they said, that, that's Alex's mother. And I was like, wow, that explains a lot of things, and it's fascinating. So, first of all, hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I guess today is <laughs> Alice Guarnaschelli. Pronounce your name. Yes. Okay, good. And that wasn't a pronunciation. You just said yes. But um, <laughs> it worked out. And she is the uh, executive chef owner of Butter. Just the executive chef, Executive actually. chef of Butter. More well-known nationally and internationally for her presence on the Food Network, Food Channel, Food Channel Digital High Dev Bachala. And um, she's like, Alex, one thing about Alex, she's one of the only people who treats digital as seriously as she treats television. She 100%. shows up to work and kills it. 100%. Yes. It's all about the digital. But, okay, what was, so I'm not going to say your mom was like uh, Tony Soprano's mother, but I am hmm. going to say her presence was like, oh, this is a brilliant person. This is a woman of power. And, these people all respect her opinion. And yet a lot of people don't know, have any idea who my mother is. Right. Well, that's the thing. Outside of that room, she's not a figure in the culture. But in that room, it was amazing to watch. So Is that talk under about... promise and over deliver? Well, sure. But can you... Is, do you think that's my model? I'm, I'm literally asking mother, you. you. Oh, Well, I don't know. You know, but no, her job was she's a, 
She was like the what the most important book, cookbook editor of her time. Is oh, that yeah. the thing? Yeah. And so, t- can you just talk about who she was in the food world when you were growing up? I mean, my my mother. Um, I think the the most interesting part of my mother was her her method of finding books. So my mother would. Uh, my mother reads the newspaper voraciously, and still to this day, my mom said, "I can't talk because I haven't read the New York Times. I'll get back to you." To this day. So um, she would get the New York Times and read it cover to cover, and I would say, my leg is falling off. I'm in the playground. I'm bleeding. I'll be right there. No, she wasn't. She was going to finish page, section E6, the back page of whatever. So she cut out, she would cut stuff out and rip stuff out of newspapers and stack it. And it had diff- there were different stacks on the table, and she would shift the stacks and go through. So I never forget, she took this tiny square that she had really meticulous, meticulously cut out, and she wasn't careful in her cutting or her ripping generally. This was carefully cut. And even as a kid, I knew. It was, it was like 1978, so I was an, uh, 11, I guess. She held it up and she said, there's a woman in her apartment in Brooklyn Heights cooking with spices and we're going to go there. Really? What do you mean? Well, that's exactly what I yeah. said. Really? What do you mean? She said that there's a woman I read about. Here's the little piece I read. It was like a, four sentences about this woman who did cooking classes in her apartment in Brooklyn Heights, an Indian woman named Julie Sani. So we went and met this woman, Julie Sani, and I sat down and I ate this huge feast. And my father said, if we eat this food all the time, I'm divorcing you because it's like series of mowed lawn, bowls of lawn clippings. But she was cooking all this food. What ensued from that conversation and that dinner was a book called Classic Indian Cooking. Right. Why is that an important book? Um, I would say mostly because it was published in 1980. It's black and white with line drawings and no color photographs, and it's still in print. And right. it's an Indian cookbook. You can still walk into a Barnes & Noble and buy it now. To me, that means it's an important cookbook that people are still reading and cooking from, and they should be. And my mother essentially hatched that book with Julie Sani. My mother proceeded to Quincy Jones, as I call it, a series of writers. And my mother decided. She curated the talent. My mom picked. My mom was like, what, Georgianne Walken? Yeah. With actors and actresses. Sure. So my mother picked um, Lynn Rosetto Casper to write a, The Splendid Table. She picked uh, Judy Rogers to write The Zuni Cafe. And my mother, by the way, that book in particular, Zuni Cafe, my mother, that book, who oh, that book hung around the ranch. Right. She really grinded on it. But my mom would it. go and find, it was the, the Would hunt. she put a writer with the... Sometimes she'd say, your writing's not good enough and you need a writer because I'm not doing this shit. Right. So that never went over well. My mother also said stuff to me like, I said, I met Charlie Trotter, the chef at a party, and he wasn't too friendly. And she said, yeah, he went, he came to my office multiple times. And I just had to tell him that I thought he was wonderful, but that he wasn't for me. And I said, why? And she said, I just didn't think he was going to do the work. And I need someone who's going to do the work. And I said, so you turned down Charlie Trotter? And she said, oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. Not going to happen. So there was just this... Um, extremely big work ethic, um, some low self-esteem and acute arrogance and no sure. middle. There's no filling to the whoopie pie. Right. She's a no. New England girl. Right. Well, I could see, I mean, everything you just said, I could see how that is a, uh, a lot to sort of on a daily basis have to grapple with in terms of figuring out... As her daughter? Your sta- yeah, the standard. I mean, because what you're talking about is her standards. That's what I noticed was... This is a woman with incredibly high standards and very little bullshit. Oh, my God. Perfect. And that's what it looked like. Like watching her, I was like, this is fascinating. What is this? Why? But I I would think 
um, and I know from what I've read, you used to cook with your dad. That shows up in a lot of things, just in like a little blurby kind of thing. And so he seemed like maybe he was the warmer of the two. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know if it was exactly 100 degrees ever in my house growing up. Right. Um, it was two, <laughs> two academics. They met at Yale while they were both getting PhDs and they got married at Yale. Have you vomited yet? It's awesome. Yeah. So two academics. Um, my dad was maybe more generous in the kitchen. But, you know, my dad would cook these Chinese dinners and fill the whole table with pr- little bowls of prep. And then he would throw it all in the wok. And it was days of prep and then all just wok cooked. And then we would eat these unbelievable dinners. And, and it was really a hobby of my father's. So he was maybe a little less invested in the result insofar as it was for recreation. So my he mother, loved the process. Yeah, my mother needs a book to cook. What did the book say? Where did you read this recipe? Does this pie from the 1974 issue of Gourmet Magazine... Oh, so she takes like a baking approach to, to cooking. She it's takes like, a literary approach to cooking. It's got to be the written word because that's what my mother does. Is That's it. So she'd say, is the 1974 Gourmet pie better than the 1976 pie? Or did you feel the 84 kind of with more cinnamon? Wow. So there's 40 years of Gourmet Magazine and binders in my mother's, my parents' apartment. Oh, please, don't get me started. So, no, I want you to keep going. They're really, so yeah, that stuff's cataloged. Years. Oh, yeah. And not not only Gourmet Magazine. There's books, obviously. Mm, um, and there's an enormous cookbook. Does she have the New York Times, like those recipes somehow cataloged? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she has still stacks of clippings. So she, the clippings, the, the, the newspaper as a sort of moving medium that changes every day, right? That's very important for my mother. That's like the wild card, right? There's the fixed information that is coming from books and manuscripts that is set. It is sort of like an isolated moment, a moment. Yeah. Um, and then there's this revolving paper, which every day. When were the meals planned? How far in advance in your house? Um, my mom would get an impulse that seemed n- fresh to me as a kid because I was just, my mom would say, we're going to have this or I'm going to make that. But really, probably my mom started thinking about a pumpkin pie five months before and what bothered her about something. And that then five months later, we ate the pie that seemed whimsical and fun. To you. And seasonal, just to, to a novice thinker. And, and it really wasn't. And it kind of, I had a watershed moment with pies in particular. Um, to be honest, probably pies are one of my mom's strong suits um, because they're so regimented and they can really... A great recipe can yield a great pie. That's not necessarily true. That's what I'm saying about the baking versus cooking thing, right? Yes. So my mother said, how do you like my pecan pie this year, Thanksgiving? You know, it was like 2014. You're a grown-up at this point. Barely. Not in my parents' house, I'm not. Um, How do you like the pie? And I said, it's good. And she said, do you notice anything different about it? Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, that's... Oh, Nelly. That's a trap. Mom, I noticed that it's really just very flavorful. It's, it's the, the filling is more set. No. Well, did, did you change the pecans you chopped? No. And I said, just tell me. I mean, just spare me this sort of arduous journey emotionally that like never lets me out of a therapist's office. And she said, I didn't prick the dough with a fork when I baked it. And so the filling, which is essentially corn syrup, didn't run down beneath the pie and have the pie stick to the pie dish, therefore never yielding a perfect slice. She said, you will notice your pie is a perfect triangle and it tastes just as good as it ever has. Because after 38 years of making pies, I finally figured out you don't have to dock your dough. Awesome. So good talk. You know what I'm saying? Was it your all... daughter there? No, I 
you know, my daughter does my has grandma in small doses. It's okay. very interesting. My my daughter really likes my parents. She gets it. She drinks yes. the Kool Aid. She does. But yeah. we got to be careful. I don't want a sort of accidental, extremely arrogant, um, deflated <laughs> perfectionist. <laughs> I don't need three generations. You want to stop it at a certain point. Yeah, I do. Right. Yeah. That that makes sense. Did you watch your mom interact with chefs or how she talked about them? And I'll, I'll, because I grew up in a home where, because it's funny to me, you said, oh, I thought I wasn't sure I was going to go into food. But obviously with the way your parents were, like it wasn't just also a whimsical thing. This was a, a debate inside you. This was a conversation. Yeah. Be, because, so my dad was a record producer and music publisher, and he interacted with songwriters and artists all day long. He was, but he was... The, the sort of business conduit, but he was also, in the way that your mom was, he really worked with them on their songs. He was a songwriter before he became an executive. But he would talk about artists in a way that it was clear he respected, admired, and loved them, but they were the other. They were to be managed. They were to be, you had to pull the great thing out of them. They were a little bit crazy, which made me, when I wanted to become an artist, it, it, the, the act of saying I'm going to do it was an act of saying I'm going to become a crazy maker in a way. You're nodding. And I'm just wondering, watching her interact, how scary it was for you to have to be like, actually, I'm one of them. I never have ever been talked to like this. <laughs> and I would say um, fully. But it was Maybe we little... should talk about who you're the switching therapist. Yeah. Jesus. I'm canceling my last check. I, yes, but it was a slightly more fluid than that because I will say that my father always said, whatever you're going to do, just do something you really like because you're going to do it a lot and you're going to do it every day and you're going to do it all <clears> the great. time and just pick something you like. And I said, well, I don't really know what that is. And he said, hey, some, you'll, you're going to find something. He said, but just do that and don't do other stuff. And my mother didn't really weigh in on what I should do. So that was very helpful. Yes, my dad was encouraging too. I'm just talking about what goes on in your own. Right. Well, I'm talking about your own, what you pick up when you hear that, you know, oh, the manuscript's late. Or, oh. oh, these people. And then you're going to be like, well, I want to be them. Not It's a, a you, you know, it, it's it's choosing internally the sense of which side of the thing you're on. You're defecting, you really. Right. You're a defector. In a sense, you're a defector going to the other side. Yes, definitely. Um, but I just knew that the minute I graduated from college, you know, my parents were looking at me like, why don't you have a 4.0 like we did? That was, every time my dad got my report card, he'd say, onward and upward. Every time, the same thing. Um, and I knew the minute I graduated from college that I didn't want to go to school anymore. I didn't mind all that I had had, but I knew that I'd now went to Barnard. I got a degree in art history, and I thought, what am I going to do? If I don't single-handedly restore the Sistine ceiling, there's really nothing else I want For people do. who don't know, Barnard is Columbia. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, you're like, I didn't do what they did. You went to the fourth best college in the country. Oh, by the way, my father I also mean, said you know, to me, if you don't get into standards. an Ivy League school, you will go to a state school and get a 4.0 and transfer into an Ivy League school because I'm not paying for an education in any other school. Right. Other. There was no, there was no opportunity. So standard. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Midtown across from the Carnegie Deli. And where'd you go to? Uh, yeah, which oh, was never, man. which was never very good. Was it Carnegie Deli? I know it probably felt like your childhood. No, no, no. Let me let me remove the layer of sentimentality that I, that I do apply to some New York institutions and say the pickles, the flunk in the brisket, and the turkey burger were exceptional. Okay. 
The rest, I could take or leave. But a chopped liver pastrami rye hybrid with um, a little brisket with mustard on pretty good, pretty good. You go chopped liver pastrami, not chopped liver turkey. Yeah, I do. I go chopped liver turkey. The the chopped liver... Um, yeah, teach me. Really what you have to do is the chopped liver, the meat, some of the meat, maybe a squirt of mayo, then more meat, then mustard on the other side, scrunch and eat. I love you for the thing you just said, which is mayo, which is a heretics thing to say. Yeah, yeah, I'm with it. I, I would always do that, and yeah. I, but you try to sneak it because they were they're dirty. Pretty, you're not supposed to put the mayo on no. that. That is not built. Chopped liver is not built to have the mayo put on the sandwich. It might be like a Bill Belichick move in sandwiches. I'm thinking. Yeah, I think. It's yeah. a very yeah. It's def- I want to equate it to the you, 1980 hockey team, but I can't. You, you I don't, can, I'm not that clever. That's fine. You can you can uh, 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 to the to which to the Miracle on Ice team. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was referenced in the show, wasn't it? Sure. Yeah. Very you can gradually. Yes, you Slowly. can throw the. We can play the reference game. It's a hard game for anyone to win. Yeah, no, I'm out. The I'm reference out. game isn't gonna. I just suicided out. I mean, I'll start naming all the players on that team and the <laughs> coach. It's not gonna. There's no. It's not gonna. There's end no well. win in it. Are you struggling to sleep? I will tell you that I hate those nights when it's hard to fall asleep. And the one thing you want to know is that your mattress is right, so that you feel comfortable and safe and. Um, helped to sleep and the fine people at mattress firm want to help you mattress firm aka america's neighborhood mattress store can help you stretch your budget a little further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep these are mattress experts here people and they are not just mattress experts they can straight up help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets they even have bedroom decor they've got you covered Literally and figuratively. I hate puns, but I will say that it's valid. It's a valid pun in this read. Please go to mattressfirm.com and save 10% with the code PODCAST10 through May 2nd. Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee, so you know you paid the perfect price. Again, go to mattressfirm.com to learn how your sleeping could be tremendously improved. Plus, go to mattressfirm.com and save 10% with the code PODCAST10 through May 2nd. I could talk delis with you for the whole rest of the time. We shouldn't do that. Yeah. Because it's a constant trying to really find like the original Second Avenue deli was good, I think. This is a tough one. Yeah, I really kind of think Sarge's is a little underrated and off the radar. And I'd kind of I'd kind of like to say, yeah, there's sometimes Sarge's hits home with me in some bizarre little ways. By the way, I get part of my deli mood out of the way at Russ and Daughters. I, I like to cobble together the full deli experience. I hate this idea that we have to pick one place and that's it. Because I really think if you're a true New Yorker, you go around collecting odds and ends of the best and then you go home. That's true. It's cutting clippings from the newspaper. It's what I learned. So I cut clippings from different places, and then I put together my own narrative at home. I mean, that's what I learned. I agree. I'm ride or die Barney Greengrass, though. Oh, I love Barney Greengrass. That's just because of the memories of childhood. So that's my ride or die. Those they, guys are that they. They just work so hard at being great at it. I agree. No, they're truly great. But it's not a deli. That's right. It's an appetizing place. That's right. I mean, you got to go around and collect and go home and say, I got deli today. Here it is. And slay it out. And don't tell anybody where you got anything. Yeah, you mean go from here. Go. You can go to Katz's for something. You yes, can go. Yes, you have to collect. And just piece it together. Yes. So, okay, you grew up in Midtown. Mm-hmm. You went to Horace Mann. I did. I went to Walden, which is 
Trevor Day now yeah. until eighth grade. Then I went to Horace Mann. Right. So I played. I sat in a circle and held hands and sang Kumbaya and talked about my feelings. In and, the early grades. And wrote, um, you know, essays on Essie Hinton books on how I felt about Pony Boy. And then I arrived at Horace Mann in ninth grade, and they said, for those of you that spent the summer studying calculus in Morocco, please detail in your essay in Sanskrit how you feel about your summer months. And I was like, you know, lost at sea for most of high school. I, I, yeah, I want to translate this for people. Because while it is true that the private education that you got is on certain objective standards, incredible. But the Horace Mann is a factory kind of a mm-hmm. of a Ivy League prep preparatory factory and it's it's as high pressure an environment as a high school student could find themselves in yeah I actually know a lot of people you went to high school I didn't realize because you're a year or two younger than I am because you said 1978 you were 11 I was 12 and um so I know a lot of people who were in class of 87 the no, 100 the centennial class at Horace Mann oh then then you did your math wrong because well, how you old weren't was I? born in 78. I'm sorry. In 78, 78 you were I much was... younger. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Math. I always got a D in math. Sorry about That's that. That's fine. I'm just saying you did your math wrong. I still know people who were there with you, but more. I graduated 84 from high school. So, um, but that place was like a, a factory. So, how did you fit in? I always like to ask people who've become very successful as you have if you, like, sort of what the roots of that were in high school, like who you were. So who were you as a high school student? Yeah, I got voted friendliest in the yearbook, which then my friends said, we voted for you, but it was ironic. So that made no sense to <laughs> uh. me. Um, I think I had a lot of friends in a lot of different cliques, and it was a way of deflecting from the pain of maybe not necessarily belonging to anyone and maybe wanting that secretly, right. as we all sort of, some of us do. I was an, a really unexceptional student, mostly because of math. I almost didn't make it to 12th grade from 11th because of math. Yeah, me too, math. Um, so math, chemistry, physics was my undoing, and the teachers would just look at me and say, you're so bright and so articulate, and I'd say, I really am, but you're not ever going to get me to find... Because you weren't interested in that other stuff. I just, I don't, I don't have, I don't have anything there. It's like an area of my brain where there's just meringue that's been piped in there to look like a brain. And people keep saying, yes, you're so bright. You can do this. You can do this. I believe it. No, I'm, I'm never going to get there. And I hate you also. Oh, yes. And I hate the book. And I hate the smell of it when I open the pages. And I don't like all those funny symbols. And I'm never going to use this. So there was maybe a hostility. Yes. And resistance. I was miserable at the math stuff. And Pocahontas because I had some kind of ADHD, I couldn't. If I wasn't interested, I just couldn't deal. When I wasn't interested in it, I could, if I, uh, the kind of boredom I felt felt like a kind of death and I had to throw the book across the room. So when I was interested, great. But if I wasn't, I just couldn't. Did you care? I didn't care. Yes, I cared deeply. Yeah, that's a thing, especially when we were kids, the way women and men were socialized differently. I was able to find an outlet not to, I was able to find ways not to care. You already understand my parents. How do you think it went home? How do you think it went over at home well, when said, that report card would come? And my and they were both Ivy League PhDs. That's right. From Yale, not just Ivy Leagues. My mother got a PhD in Russian studies. You know the the, the norm, Russian studies. And my dad got a PhD in European history, and he was actually a TA already for the classes at Yale. And my parents met and started dating, and they went to Pepe's and they ate the clam pizza and. Then they got married in the chapel at Yale. And they've been married 50 some odd years. Right. So you were, you had this sense, 
Were you cooking for people? Would you throw parties? Were you good at bringing people together then? Did you know you liked the no, thing that chefs school. have of making people feel good in a certain way? No, no connection to so that. So how'd you find that stuff? I didn't find cooking for that reason, nor do I know that I even do that now. I chose cooking more based on what I knew I wouldn't be able to do. I hate to, I know that may sound odd, but truly I knew a few things on my graduation. My graduation from college, I woke up and I said, by the end of today, I'm gonna decide my profession. It just felt right. It was 9 a.m. Really, I'm not lying. It's such a good story, and everybody's like, oh, isn't that great? You're so awesome. No, this is truly what happened. 9 a.m., I, I woke up, and I thought, you know what? You just, you're just going to pick something, and because what are we going to do? Piddle around and surf and you know, look into a, you know, look Wait, into the horizon. Wait, this is the day line. you finish at Columbia at Barnard? Mm -hmm, yeah. I just said, by the end of today, you'll decide your profession. So I thought, well, what do you really What like else was in do? your head? Yeah. Nothing. So I didn't, I didn't, I did, the answer is nothing. And people are like, come on, you want I wanted to be a marine biologist. I like the idea of ocean boat tagging squid, watching all that stuff. The ocean is so vast. Um, you could quiver with ambition for the rest of your life on a boat and never get tired was I think ultimately what I liked about it. Here's the problem. I can't go into the ocean above my knees. And since I saw Jaws, I basically can't handle anything. So that wasn't gonna work. So I thought, well, I really like to cook. Which leads to what you asked me before. I would, in college, make lasagna and big format dishes that were cheap. I would shoplift food if I couldn't afford it. And I would make these big lasagnas and big cakes and pasta. And people would come over and, and eat. And no one else wanted to cook. You did it like in the apartment you were living yeah. in during college? Sweets. You know, you had a little... At co yeah. Like housing, campus housing? Yeah. And you would just make a big lasagna. Yeah. And invite friends over. Yeah. No one else... No one said, hey, I want Did people wanna... say, holy shit? Yeah, holy shit, yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's nice. It wasn't for you that I made it, was what I was thinking. I don't that's know why, it, it had to come out of me. And it was, it was also a physical thing. And people are like, oh, I just have to cook, like I don't feel right. I have to physically, it needs to physically depart from me, the, the act of cooking, like an athlete, like I, you, a javelin or a, or a football. I have I, to write, I understand it completely. It has to leak out of me. So there was that. And then there was also, um, I could be alone. I could think about, I could think a lot of things through while I was cooking because, you know, your cerebrum and your cerebellum can do different things. In my imagination, they can. So I could throw a lasagna in the oven and be thinking through, you know, my paper on, I don't know, 16th century Dutch paintings yeah. and, and, and get something accomplished on both ends. But I thought, well, all you really like to do is cook. That's the only thing you actually like to do. And, and again, I come back to my father. He said, just do something you like. You're going to do it a lot. So I started. My, I called my mom. I said, I want to go to cooking school. She said, well, you're paying. I've had it with you. She said, I know a, right, a, a chef whose manuscript is overdue, which is fascinating what you said. His manuscript's very overdue. I'll get him to take you for like a week or two and you can work in his kitchen. That chef was Larry Forgione, who had right. an American place. And who you ended up becoming, you worked with him for a long time. I worked with him for about a year and a half and he said, look, you're a cute kid and I could keep you here and make you a sous chef in a few years. He said, but go work in France. It's where life is perfect. And so I bought a book called The Shaw Guide to World Culinary Schools and I did a little flipping and I found this cooking school in France in Burgundy I wrote them a letter and said, I want to do dishes in exchange for a diploma. They accepted me. I went. I did the dishes. I got the diploma. And did then you I, learn anything there? I learned a lot. I, I, I took Technique. high school French, 
and I'd taken some French in college, so it helped my French a lot. Um, I learned a lot of very um, old school French dishes, which I consider the fundamentals of cooking for me. They're not Did you already know how to make like the mother sauces? And I mean, you already were pretty sophisticated for a starting out person. You can you? be a great spectator and a great commentator, but it doesn't mean you're going to be a great player. Right. So I watched my mother make everything. But you weren't in there. By rote from a book. But you weren't in there? Oh, I was there cook watching, but she didn't let me do a lot. So you weren't doing. Mrs. Perfect right. wasn't going to let me do much. I peeled potatoes. I needed And what bread. about chopping I... for your dad with the wok stuff? No, he wouldn't let me cut it. Because he was into it, That's doing right. it himself. No, I didn't cook any. My, my father, nothing. He was in it for the chopping. Once I mean, in he a while, wanted them... he would make something Italian, and we would cook that. My friend Seth Godinoy says mise en place is its own reward, so I understand. That's great. That should be, that should be his, something. Yeah, it is. He's written pieces called, yeah, mise en place is his own reward. It's so great in life. Well, so you can mise someone into their place. Mise <laughs> is the verb metra to right. put. So you yeah. can put someone yeah. in their place if you like. And my mom mised me right, right into, into your place. You know, peeling potatoes, kneading bread, all. And I watched everything, and that was helpful. But no, if anything, there was an inflated sense that I could achieve all these things, and I needed to go back and be humbled by the fact that to burn yourself while making a hollandaise is different from eating many of them and intellectualizing yourself as the next Escoffier. Yeah. Sure. But when you were um, at so at Columbia, when you start making that food, you can actually do it then. You're doing it. I made very simple things. I made things that could be cooked in advance and that I knew would taste better. And they're deli- they, they were delicious, and they were delicious. Crowd pleasers. Friendliest. Oh, High yes. school yearbook. Wait. I want to say I read the thing you said where you your secret confession, which is that you loved cold pasta, but I love it. And I someone, Chuck Rhodes on the show, eats cold pasta sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people, some people who recap the show are like, who eats, who would ever, that's so disgusting. And I was like, that... Maybe the closest part of me and Chuck Rhodes is that he'll eat the cold pasta out of the fridge at night. Like, who wouldn't do that? Somebody, the way the sauce is on the pasta then, the texture of it, it's a different thing. You, heating it up is hard and can be gross. It gets mushy. Yes. Totally would not reheat it. Also, the pasta, the fat in the sauce often separates, and then it's just grease. And then this other to, sort of to, condensed. To reheat it, you're saying. Oh, Yeah. Um, unearthing a meatball from a bowl of pasta, pasta sauce that has set is to literally walk the moon and find a boulder of gold as I, far as I'm concerned. I agree. And Chuck Rhodes, by the way, this is a sort of separate side note. P- clearly people that don't understand that never eat to heal pain, which has nothing to do with That's hunger. Right. That's exactly right. So he is chewing down his day. And that's a lot of meatballs and pasta in Chuck Rhodes. He's got to chew down his marriage. He's got to chew down his choices. He's got to chew down his hubris. He's got to chew down his... It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, we got to... I need a meatball. But it is. When you need that pasta, if you need the pasta at 2 in the morning, you don't need it heated up. It's the chew. Yeah, you want the chew. You need the molar, the back molar to dig in on something. And when you dislodge... You know, like when you step on snow and snow boots and your toes grip it and, you, and it goes... You feel the snow under you. It's the same when the back molar kicks in on a on a chewy, toothsome piece of spaghetti. It's the tooth. It's, it has nothing to do with hunger or eating or appetite. Fools. By the way, it how often do we eat out of real hunger? Well, not yeah. I don't. I mean, yeah, right. I'm sorry. I don't even. I don't even know that I know. I don't know that Very, I know. I mean, raw there's hunger. a percentage of Americans that do. 
know what hunger is. I read in Michael Pollan's, one of Michael Pollan's books, if you're not hungry to eat an apple, you're not hungry. You know, you read something and it's your, like, you read it in someone's bathroom at a dinner party in one of those cute little books and you just retain it as fact for the rest of your life. I go to the store and I look at everything and I say, do you want to eat an apple? And my body is like, hell no. He's amazing, that guy. Yeah, yeah, he has a way. I agree. My, he's, I he's the real deal. My son took a class with him at college, a seminar. That's lucky. And said, one of the only professors he ever came across, better than what you would have imagined, truly like a great, like a great man, a great teacher, the whole thing. Clarity. Cares. He, like That's the thing when you read his book. People haven't read Michael Pollan's books, and I don't agree with every um, right. position that, that, that he takes. Right. But boy, is that guy thorough, and does he mean it? But also, he's engaging, even and if a great you're writer. In, yeah. Hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting a job online and just praying for the right people to see it. Look, I know I've had trouble in the past hiring people, whether it's a crew person on a movie that we're directing, whether it's a writer for a writer's room, knowing you need this valuable piece and you don't know where to look for it is frustrating. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they build a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even highlight the strongest applications you receive. So you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, I want to do some biographical stuff with you about this food This stuff. hasn't been biographical. It has. Oh but I want to, no, we are. No, no, it's been, it's been psychological more. But um, what, do you remember the first time you ate something and it was mind-blowing to you in a different way? Just what do you mean by different? Like, okay, your parents cooked and they were good. Where, where you ate something and you realized like, oh, I love this. I love food. This, is, this matters to me. No. Because I, 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 it was your whole life. Yeah, I do, I do remember certain taste sensations. I'm only interested in taste. It's really, everything else is just kind of hanging around the ranch because it's all part and parcel of the human experience. I'm really only interested in great flavor. Um, and you can get there a million ways. I would say that um, almond extract and rum are really important to me. And if you don't understand it, I don't need you to, but my mom made chocolate pudding on a do in a double boiler when I was a kid and she would put vanilla in there. And so you would get the smell of the vanilla, which was something. I mean, let's remember that vanilla was originally made only to flavor chocolate. That was vanilla's original part in the play. Then it decided to get all hoity-toity and become its own thing. Um, and then she would put um, oh, rum, and she would stir it, and so it would blow. You know, the steam would come up when she would stir it. And I dug my a giant tablespoon into the pudding, boiling hot, and I ate it, and... I got the vanilla and the rum, and I just thought that I had never tasted something so true 
to me. And maybe, oh yes, booze to an eight-year-old palate is something, but those two flavors with, and, and by the way, you needed chocolate. You needed the, the, the chocolate was, say, the canvas for the rum and the vanilla. You just did a totally Proustian. I love how you talk about food. It's amazing the way that it all makes sense to you, the way it's a narrative. Because whatever wasn't going on for you in math, your ability, not that you said casually, they talked about how you talked, but you do see the world completely like a writer, completely as a narrative, uh, which is beautiful to watch and, and hear. But you did a Proustian thing to me with um, the vanilla, because I did, my mother wasn't a great cook, but she liked <laughs> to cook, and she was just not a sophisticated cook at all. That she, The way she grew up, her parents knew nothing of... They, her parents were horrible cooks, and... So my mom tried. She wanted it to be nice, and she would make French toast. It was okay. And then I saw on TV that Mr. Rogers made it once, and he used vanilla. And I was like, Mom. I was like five. And I was like, Mom, he uses this vanilla. And then we went to the market, Aww. and we got vanilla extract. And then she, we used it. And, you know, the first time you open, if you've never smelled vanilla extract, oh yeah, when we opened it, it was like, um, an entire, you know, that was a had a huge changing kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It was like this su super sophisticated, you know, for like a, a little house in Long Island. That was like a very sophisticated thing to suddenly have in the house in 1973. And it could go a long way. Yeah, it was great. We had means, but it was still like we just weren't sophisticated. You and don't know. yeah, she just did, we didn't know. She didn't know. And, and so it was great. And I remember eating the French toast, then it had that smell. That's and it was an entirely moment. different experience. It's an aroma. I mean, it's really more of an aroma than yeah. even more of a taste. Yes. You, you. Some things are more taste and less aroma, but vanilla is very... I don't like the word perfumey because I don't consider vanilla perfume. I think of honey as perfumey more than I would say vanilla. But Vanilla is... It's red, this, the thing becomes redolent of it, and you... Right, it, it kind of just is in your sinus. It's in you then. It's great. Did that, you read uh, James and the Giant Peach? Roald Dahl. I've read. I know the. Yes, I've read it. I don't know if you remember, but it was so vivid to me when I think he's the kid's running and someone drops the stones into the ground and they sink into the soil and then out comes the peach tree. I sort of think of vanilla as having that kind of effect. It just sinks into your tongue. It's funny how life is because that, of course, that book would get you. For me, it was Henry Sugar by Roald Dahl. I love that. Which book. is the gam well about the gambler. And yeah. I, my whole, I, you know, that was, I'd say, one of the most significant things I ever read as a kid because of the way he talked about what gamblers were like and why the person would want to see the other side of the cards. I've spent almost an entire life rewriting that story and everything that I've done almost in some way. It's all about a con. It's all about um, a guy, actually, a supposedly religious guy. Who's, and that's all this stuff that's been fascinating to me. Roald Dahl, bad person, great writer. Yeah, I would say he leaves you wondering if, Beautiful things come out of dark things. Yeah, clearly miserable guy. Just wrote oh, amazing, yeah. just God wrote bless. amazingly beautiful stuff. Stick with it, buddy. So when, before you decided, what did you think? If I would have asked you at uh, 15 what your path was going to be, what would you have said? I really wanted to be an actress, okay? You had to get there. You had to do it. Well, you got there. You're on television. Um, I live, uh, so the building I grew up in was all voice teachers and voice coaches and agents and acting teachers and whatever else. And I would sit in the lobby with my doorman on weekends and watch the parade of actors and actresses come in for their lessons. So on a Saturday morning, I would watch Tony Randall, Lauren Bacall, Yul Brenner, Gig Young, all these people would just file in and take their lessons awesome. and leave. And I would sit and I would watch these people walk in and out of my building. Um, 
So when Hanman, who is still um, lives in 6C, my parents are in 5D, is a great acting teacher and coach, and I went up to see him when I graduated from college, and I was already working at an American place for like, you know, 90 hours a week. So I went upstairs and I said, I really want to be an actor, and I, I just, I don't know what to do about it. It just feels wrong, but I really want to do it. And he said, if you can be anything but an actress, anything, anything at all, please do this, whatever it is. He said, what do you do now? And I said, well, I'm cooking. He said, great. Don't look <laughs> back. <laughs> and so you never tried it? Did I you never, act in college? I never looked back. I took an acting class in college, you know, one of those things where you... But you don't regret it because you, you did the thing and got on television. I, how do we live without regret? It's not a goal of mine, but no. No, I, I, could never, I could never do it. I could never actually. I don't think so. Unless somebody would take me like as I am, you know, like Kathy Bates or something. I am an as-is prospect. Yeah, well, that's the key to life is getting to that place where you're like comfortable in your skin and happy to be taken as you are. It's the whole game. It is. It is. I'm going to have to eat more meatballs in the dark of the kitchen late at night to get to a truly satisfied place with myself, but I definitely feel on the path. Yeah, it's very hard, obviously, to get there. Some practical questions, because um, this conversation's been so fascinating, but it's been uh, in a good, great way for me, Rambly, but I do want to, because I know, it's messy. people who are I'm your sorry. fans, Should no, it's me. Should be more buttoned up? No, this is everything I want in a conversation, but for the people who are your fans, what, can I ask you, like, what, how do you get so much accomplished during the course of a day? Because you are still running a restaurant. You are still on television all the time. Yeah. You're still producing books. Yeah. And what's your newest book? Oh, it's called The Home Cook. And it's really, I like it a lot. Well, all this stuff sets it's us up for a book that's about the home cook. You're trying to make it for the person who's like your mother, but maybe a little more chill. Yes. Well, that's not hard. Right. Um, whatever. But um, how do you how do you like how do you organize your day or how do you think about it how do you plan? Well, if I'm on Chopped, which is unlike any other show I'm on, that I, I can't do much else, and I don't try because it's just so draining. Why? And what's the shooting schedule it's like? About it's I go in at about six and I leave at seven. Or how eight many at days night. do you shoot for? So one episode, one day. Jesus. Yeah. So that's fourteen hours for forty-seven minutes. I mean, I know you. That's nothing. Um, but if you were trying to hold on, that, if that's your day job then, you know, your regular nighttime job becomes hard. When we first started shooting Chopped, honestly, we would do three or four, sometimes you do three or four episodes in a row, four days in a row. That's a lot of eating, by the way, just eating. 5,000 calorie a day. I worked what, it you out. you have to finish the dishes? No, it doesn't matter if I do or if I don't. If I, if I just nibble at nine, it's nine plates of food, right? It's four, three, two. So right. how many? So I'm already at what? Here we go with my math. It's nine, nine. plates of food. That's just... And by the way, you have to eat stuff at the craft services to heal the wounds of what you've eaten on the set. No, really the wounds of what you've had to tell those people. Yeah, I'm atoning with myself, either with my stomach or my soul at any point. That's what the crafty table is for. So do you get so annoyed when you look at like Zakarian and he's sitting there in great shape on his treadmill probably in between? No. No, I love him so. I don't, I, but, I, but I don't envy him. Why? Because I can't be that. I can't be that perfect. I'm, I'm never going to iron my clothes. I'm well, never going to color coordinate everything. And I'm never going to, you know. Well, because every know. here's why. Because you know what your meatball late at night is. And who knows what his is. Everyone has one. Nobody doesn't have the three in the morning meatball. 
it just may not come out as a meat, maybe some other whole situation. Yes, I've, I'm, I I would just just kind of let that subtext pulsate right where it is. Yeah, that's yes. all. Everybody has something. Yes. Um, so Chopped is consuming. Um, if I do another show like Beat Bobby Flay, for example, that's shorter, and I can go to the restaurant after. And, and you're can, active in a different way doing that, too. Yeah. I mean, if I'm cooking, obviously, that's very active, but I love that, and I love to compete. But, but how do you manage the rest of your day? So you're going for 14 hours. How do you... Most of us feel the sense of overwhelm when we have too much to do. So, like, I journal in the morning, and I meditate, and I do certain things to try to at least get a hold of one part of the day that's, like, in some control before going and, and being in the maw of this whole situation of making my show. Do you do anything to try to, like, get your arms around it? No, I don't have that privilege. I don't have that that, that organized thought. I do, uh, I, I actually do, I go to Tracy Anderson, which is a That's gym. That's great, yeah. And I really like that. I go and I do my leg lifts. And they're like, oh, bless your heart. You're here. Hi, it's so good to see you. Everybody's a size zero. Everybody's perfect. I only know about Tracy Anderson because uh, Jenny Connor, who makes the show Girls with Lena, is always Instagram storying it. I really love her stuff. I drink I drink that Kool-Aid a lot. She's wonderful and she's helped me get to a much better place. So I do that um, and I and and I cook. I've got to cook. If it's a dinner at home or at the restaurant or wherever, I cook and I, I know this sounds hokey, but I actually finally am at a point in my life where cooking can actually be healing for me as opposed to depleting. I used to say there's a little man that comes out inside of me and builds this wall up that I, and and in the middle of while I'm sleeping I knock it down and then I build it up that's what the cooking felt like just knock down the wall and be free sure. I know this doesn't make any how, sense it makes total sense how many days a week are you at the restaurant anywhere from one to six depending on how how much I'm shooting I don't do much other I have one restaurant yes. I don't do much other than go to the restaurant I have a 10 year old and uh, I hang out with my daughter. I bring her to the restaurant. I'm like, whatever you do, you're not going to be a chef. And you know how that ends up. Sure. But I let her cook. And I let At her, home. whatever, whatever she wants to make. She loves Gordon Ramsay. I'm like, all right, well. Have you, have you introduced her to Gordon? No, I haven't yet. We're going to do that. She said, I have to do you that. You have to do it. I will. I, I understand what she, what she's, it, she's reacting to that energy and that ambition, but she's making pasta and she's cooking duck and she's, it's in there and I, there's nothing I can do about it. Do you still plan menus? Do, all the time. Yeah. At the restaurant. You're planning menus. So even if you're not oh, there, you're yeah. going back and forth with your. Oh, my chef. Yes. Chef. and Absolutely. I love doing that. Super fun. Also, you get up in like the weather and you feel like there's a ramp at the market right now. I feel it. What, um, what's your sort of it. mission now? in terms of what you want to communicate to the people who follow you. What are you, for the home cook, what are you trying to encourage people to do? Like, what's your message, if you had to distill it, now about I, I, being I mean, a cook really, I've, at I've, home? I've actually learned a lot being here. Good. Which is peculiar to say. I think the message is um, there's some things you absolutely, absolutely shouldn't do. And I'm going to lay out what those things are because that's an opinion. And if you don't have a point of view, I don't think you're ex able to express anything. But most of what I want people to do is don't be ashamed of that crappy knife that you bought at a gas station on the fly for a camping trip five years ago that you actually used to cut everything. Don't be ashamed if you like Fruity Pebbles. Whatever you're bringing to the table, if you like it and you bought it and you want to achieve it or make it, just do it. 
And if you screw it up, do it again and, and do it again. And I'm, I feel like I say to people a lot like, yeah, so what? I burned something last week. I burned my arm. People say, you're a chef. You're, you don't cut yourself. You don't burn yourself. You don't screw stuff up. Point is like to not be afraid to make mistakes and give things a try and avoid things that are silly like pineapple on pizza. We're, we're good. No pineapple on pizza? Just no. And I don't why? want to. I just, it's, it's not. I understand that's the orthodoxy. That's just why? not. It's just, first of all, pineapple really uh, should only be eaten by itself. It's it's a it's a vodka infused. Can it infuse vodka? It's a loner. Okay. It can't even infuse vodka. It's a and loner. does it have to be eaten on a very hot day too? No, I don't care about weather though. I do with some things, but you just and you can eat the core if you like that stuck in your teeth. That can have a similar molar meatball moment. Sure. Just to put the core in the back in your back molars and pina colada. Can it be mixed with coconut? I mean, barely. I guess if one must. Just don't tell me about it. Fine. And I can do that privately. Like if I want to go somewhere, can I privately have if because rum's in there, right? Rum is in the pina colada. After after so brilliantly assessing the fact that I've been raised in an impossible set of standards, why would you try to bargain me down? Why are you deal making with me? I'm just saying rum is in there. You said rum is the paramount thing. So it I would is. think the fact that the rum... Okay, what's your favorite rum drink? Is Dark and Stormy acceptable or do you need to have I rum just... I love a Dark and Stormy. Love. How do you make a Dark and Stormy? How would you make a Dark and See, Stormy? See, I like it slushy. Say it. Describe how you make it. It's a good place to end. This, because... Here's why. Come on. You love rum. It's got... Uh, dark and Stormy oh, has God, a lot I'm of gonna elements. Be, I'm going to be fired from the universe. Um, I like... A, probably I get to a Dark and Stormy with Guinness and rum... And a splash of simple syrup that has a little bit of lemon zest in it and some espresso. Wow. Yeah, that's how I'd get there. And and I like it slushy. You know, like a cheesy rom-com drink. You know, it, I, I don't mind those slushy little drinks like a slushy margarita. I have a... I have a trashy side, okay? I like... I like And I like pina coladas and not... I don't like getting caught in the rain, to be clear. I don't. <laughs> oh actually don't. I don't ever want, I don't like I getting, there's song. nothing romantic to me That's about getting caught song. in the rain, but I do like pina coladas, and now I know that you've lost a little respect for me. Not at all. But I have so much for you. Thank you for coming here. Of course. People should buy your book. Thank you. They should cook with your book. They should watch you on television and be like, wow, the battles this woman had to fight internally to get here. That's right. It's That's amazing. Right. Who cares if she got it wrong on tasting one dish on shop that we can't even taste at home? How do we know she got it wrong? They write me all the time. You were wrong. How do we know? They know. But we can't. They we didn't know. taste it. The rabid fan base. But understand, knows. this is a woman who's bringing a lot of discipline to this process. Hard won discipline That's right. to figuring this out. Um, people can find you on Twitter. You're great on Twitter. Say where they, what's your handle on Twitter? Oh, it's my name at Gornishelli. So you just spell my last name, and you will often find me tweeting about your show. Well, and I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Uh, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can write me at the moment BK at gmail.com. And um, thanks, everybody. See you next time.